1: we want to introduce you to our newest partner, which, like us, is Pure South Florida. That's Doral Toyota, where you can find all of your favorite Toyota models, whether you're looking for a new, used, or certified pre-owned vehicle. Dural Toyota is located at 9775 Northwest 12th Street. That's 9775 Northwest 12th Street, just a few blocks from International and Dolphin Malls. Experience the Dural difference, which means four years of complimentary maintenance and roadside assistance on all new vehicles. Also, in-house financing is available for credit-related issues. If you mention five reasons when you call 305-680-1129, that's 305-680-1129, or stop into the dealership, you work with a dedicated manager, not a salesman. Unlike other dealers, Doral Toyota prides itself on an honest and transparent buying process. That's Doral Toyota, DoralToyota.com, or stop in at 9775 Northwest 12th Street. Vamos, let's go. Welcome into the latest episode of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Smolnik here, as always, with Chris Whittingham. Thank you for finding us. If you're on Apple, iTunes is the best way to get us. If you're on Android, try Google Play Music. And also, you can find us on cross-platform apps, including Podbean, Stitcher, and CastBox. Recently, we've done some baseball episodes here on the Five Reasons Podcast. We did one with Craig Mish, another with Billy Gill of The Levitard Show. Both of those were very popular. You can find those for free in our library. But now we wanted to bring in somebody who was with the Marlins for 13 years through the 2017 season. Now he's moved out to the Pacific Northwest. He's calling games for just about everybody in just about everything. Uh, Some basketball, college basketball, some NBA, also some baseball on Facebook Live. And he is Rich Waltz. And the first question I have for Rich is, How has the transition gone from South Florida back to the Pacific Northwest?
2: Well, the biggest adjustment is me trying to download uh, what is it, Podbean and Stitcher and all these things. So I feel feel inadequate uh, technically after I I listen to that roll call. For me, the biggest adjustment is um, is no day to day baseball. That's the for 24 years um, you had uh, spring. It's a natural rhythm: spring training, and then you jump into the season. Uh, but there's benefits to that as well—a chance to do a lot of stuff with my uh, family. I've got daughters who are 17 and 21, so it's been great to spend time around them. And um, I miss the— uh, to be honest with you—I uh, miss the clay court tennis in uh, South Florida. There's no clay up here in, in the northwest of when I lived down in in South Florida. I really liked—I uh, really got into tennis on the clay. So. Uh, but there's other cool stuff up here, so the, the adjustment's not been that that uh, that hard to make.
1: So I guess Nadal is safe now because you won't uh, be uh, <laughs> you won't be playing that much on clay up there.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, the hard look, I'm getting old, so uh, playing on the hard courts is hard on the body. But uh, Nadal is just dyna- uh, dynamite on clay. So he's that was a, a, a the French Open was just a cakewalk for him. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how he does it on the grass because obviously Federer missed the French and Federer's waiting for him on the grass. So that will be a, uh, an interesting tournament for sure.
1: Yeah, I can't believe how long that rivalry has been going on. It's just kind of it's just taken for granted at this point because Federer was left for dead like six years ago and it's still uh, it's still going. All right, we're going to do a little bit um, on everything here with Rich uh, and we wanted to start here with part one. Now, Rich was the play-by-play voice. For the Marlins from 2005 through 2017, and I went back uh, through those seasons because I got to be honest, Rich, a lot of them run together. Um, it's you know, <laughs> uh, there were there were three playoff, or not excuse me, not three playoff seasons, but three above 500 seasons uh, during those. I guess it would be 13 seasons, and I just wanted to start with this question: Was there one year that you came to spring training and you thought? This is a playoff team. Uh, this, you know, obviously the Marlins have made the playoffs twice and they won the World Series both times in ninety seven and oh three. But was there one spring training where you looked around at the players there, some of the enthusiasm and thought, yep, this is the year I'm going to be calling playoff games with the Marlins.
2: Well, um, that's a good question because they do all kind of run together. I think that my first season in two thousand and five, that was a playoff team. that was that was still a um, a good number of guys that were on that world championship team from 03. That was the, really the last year of, uh, you know, Lowell and Louie and, and Miggy and, um, and all those guys. So that was a year that you thought they had a chance. They came up short. Um, I think they were, uh, 2005, they were probably three or four games over 500 and missed the postseason the the i think the 3rd or 4th year after 06 probably 09 was a team that you thought now that 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 young team in 06 of all the teams that that i saw and and had a chance to to call games for i think the 06 team uh, was the one that was the most fun because it was it was an absolute anonymous roster to begin the season and as it turned out a lot of those guys were really really good uh, from ugla to Josh Johnson to Hanley Ramirez. That team was the first team in major league history that went 20 under and then fought their way back over 500. And they were, I think they finished just under 500, but, but like two or three years later when, when those guys were established and they started making all-star teams and, and Josh Johnson was still healthy and and pitching, that was a year that you thought they had a, a a legitimate shot to either wild card or, uh, or the division. And they, they were one of those teams that finished above 500 um, and they won I think 86 or 87 games you know I think um, you know the 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 hard part about the, the the last team that I called the 2017 team was you could tell it just wasn't a complete team it it just didn't have the the frontline starting pitching or the the depth of arms you um, to start the season. It was a dynamic outfield and a, and a really fun team. in in terms of offense, They just didn't have the, the, the arms to compete. But you know, the, the the thing that you learn really quickly as a, as a major league broadcaster is you have no control over what's on the field. Uh, you, you really can't affect uh, whether the team's competitive. You really can't affect whether the team's exciting. The only thing you can control is, um, is your telecast. Are you, did you have a good telecast? And there were many years. And I think there's this is just not me, but there's broadcasters across the uh, landscape of Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NHL, um, the NFL, that you know have to uh, have to come to the realization that your value as a broadcaster has nothing to do with the team's win-loss record. Uh, you have to you really have to separate yourself and tell yourself. I'm going to have a great broadcast regardless of what happens today on the field. And so many a times in those spring trainings, when you had young teams that were rebuilding or reloading or however you want to say it, if uh, you went in with the idea, not so much of boy, I hope, hope these guys make the playoffs or uh, you know, this is the year or boy, they, they have no chance to win. You go into that uh, spring training, at least I did with, How can I make the telecast fun? How can I make the the telecast good? Um, And that kind of was the plan of attack a lot of times.
3: How much did you think that things would change when you guys moved to the new stadium? Because I think that's the team that you didn't bring up. There was that 2012 team when they moved into the new ballpark and they made these big money signings, bringing in uh, Reyes and Heath Bell and Mark Burley. D- did you think that things would significantly change moving into the stadium?
2: Well, you'd hope it. It, it certainly did change in terms of your work environment, um, and it did change in in terms of.
3: I've been, I've been in it. that booth. It's pretty nice. Yeah,
2: yeah. And, and you know, and, and all of a sudden the stadium's located in downtown Miami and all of that. But the one thing that you, having been around the game a long time, and uh, you see it in other places, whenever you put together a team of guys from different places with big contracts and all of that, it rarely works out the way you think it's going to work out. It's I mean, because – just by the nature of free agency across baseball, guys that sign for five years and 90 million or whatever contract they sign, the reality is those contracts are, especially in the, the middle to end years, players rarely uh, are producing at that level at, at that time. So, you know, I think that team, think back to that team and, and there were a lot of big names and, and a lot of big pieces, but at the at the same time, um, organizational depth is, is, is hard to achieve for any major league team, and I think that's a, a, essentially probably what, what sunk, that, um, what sunk that, that group was they just didn't have the, the depth organizationally to, um, to react to injuries, to react to uh, you know a, a Heath Bell flaming out and not being able to perform, stuff like that. That's, that's probably what, what sunk that group.
1: Talking to Rich Waltz here, uh, I want to go back to the early days now, because as you mentioned, uh, the first team that you uh, were the voice for, that 2005 team, it, it did have uh, a lot of holdovers from the 2003 team. I mean, the double play combination, Castillo and Gonzalez, Lowell at third, uh, the whole outfield, actually. Cabrera, Pierre, and and Carnacion were all there. Conine was still on that team. I mean, and you'd uh, the team had added LaDuca and Delgado. So, I mean, just looking at that lineup, uh, it was a pretty decent lineup, and you had some pitching holdovers, too, including Dontrell. So I uh, wanted to sort of start uh, with sort of your memories. What comes first to mind for particular players um, at the beginning? And uh, you were basically there for—I mean, Cabrera hit the home run off Clemens in the 2003 series. That was kind of his announcement to Major League Baseball. But uh, you were there for for his real breakout, um, and, and that year he hit 323, drove in 116. What are some of your Miggy memories uh, from those first couple of seasons?
2: I had been around in Seattle uh, for 10 years uh, with the Lou Piniella years. I was the uh, kind of the utility man for that Seattle team, and so I did pregames on TV. I filled in on play by play. I hosted their uh, the Lou Pinella show. Uh, so I did a lot of stuff, and I was around Edgar Martinez an awful lot. And I was a, a college shortstop, so I you know I had particular interest in in um, technique, in drills, in just you know how guys got to where they are and, and the, what they did to prepare for games. And I'll tell you, being around Edgar Martinez was incredible. Just watching him go about his work, the, the drills that he did, um, the preparation, all that stuff, he made himself into uh, the premier right-handed hitter of, of his era. And so from there, um, and Edgar, by the time 2005, Edgar's, uh, you know, career was sunsetting. And and, and all of a sudden I, I've got a front row seat to watch this young right-handed bat and Miguel Cabrera. And um, in con- there are similarities in, in a sense that they're just, you know, hitting savants in terms of their, their skills and, and baseball IQ. But Miggy was much more of a natural hitter than Edgar. And so – it's so incredible that it—it it always seemed that nothing—nothing um, nothing really affected Miggy. Whether it was staying out all night, whether it was—I mean, he, you know, in the on-deck circle, chatting with fans, and, and the umpire looking at him, going, "Hey, come on, you're you're up." And he'd step in the box and hit a ball in the gap for for a double. He's—he was much more of a natural hitter uh, than Edgar. And and just having a ringside seat for that. To watch uh, Miguel Cabrera at that point in his career, to me, was just uh, uh, un- unbelievable because it's like you're looking at this guy has un- the, the best pure hitting instinct skills that I've ever seen.
3: You mentioned that background in Seattle watching Edgar Martinez. If you had to pick from your – you mentioned the 24 years earlier that you've been around a team every day. Who is the best player that you got to see on a daily basis – And for you, sort of sticks out as this is the best player I've ever seen.
2: Uh, It's easy. That's Ken Griffey Jr. He was, um, you know, defensively, uh, offensively, his presence in the lineup. He was and speed. He could steal bases. When you saw him, you could see that was that's the best player I've been around. Alex was there early um, and wasn't in Seattle long enough. Uh, to see all of that, but uh, I saw him a lot in the American League. Uh, but Griffey was the guy. Griffey was, um, you know, he was he was everything you thought he was. He was the kid, and um, and those were fun teams to to cover uh, with Pinella, and then um, you know Edgar and Junior and and um, and Buner and Alex and and all those guys. But Griffey was the guy. You know, if you look at the Marlins and and say who's the best player. You know, probably Cabrera at at, at that stage in his career because he could play, uh, you know, third base, he could play the outfield, he could play first base, he could, and and he could just, just flat out rake.
1: Did you see him, Rich, as uh, – now, I mean, he's a surefire first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, I, I made the case the other day that uh, you put him in the top five athletes uh, who ever played uh, in Miami. If you just look at the totality of their career, I mean, I think obviously, Mar- obviously Marino, LeBron, uh, Shaq, um, and, and Wade are in there. But I, I think you can make a case that Cabrera might be fifth or, or even ahead of Dwayne, that, that he might even be fourth. As 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 meticulous as he was, as gifted as he was – did you see that? Uh, did you think that this guy could be, you know, one of the all time greats? And then go through your thoughts if you can uh, when the trade is made and they add Maben and Miller and baden and, and and that just uh, did you think that was a disaster at the time?
2: You know, I didn't think it was a disaster at the time um, because you knew the reality. And that was not just with the Marlins at that time, but other uh, teams around baseball. Uh, Oakland, the Rays, other other teams that were not high revenue teams, uh, having a guy at that point in his career, you know, and in contract, that was kind of a sad reality. Um, yeah. I mean, look, in that 2005 season, I think he was 22 or 23 or maybe younger at, at that point. And you saw his resume just in that short three year span from 03 to 05. And you thought, if this, you know, with, like I said, the natural skills, the natural ability. The one caveat with Miggy, though, and I think everybody uh, around him knew that, is he needed to get, keep his life on the rails. Um, and he had, and, and certainly that was an issue in Detroit uh, to begin with. And it, it feels like, and I'm not around him or around that team, but it, it feels like he was able to do that, uh, thankfully. And that, I think, has helped keep his career going and keep him productive. And and I was really – when I saw the, the news that he had uh, ripped his uh, bicep or ruptured the bicep, it was um, – I, I thought of that. I thought it gives you a jolt of, you know, go back and look at his career and the many years that he has and all the hits and the – and the home runs and the RBIs, and, and you know, the on base percentage, and, and all the, the numbers that have stacked up. And yeah, he's, he's headed to Cooperstown.
1: All right, so let's you talk a little about that 2006 team. And uh, Rich, I was actually with that team in Houston for their opener. Um, and that was kind of a circus because uh, that was when uh, the Marlins were talking about trying to get a new stadium. And what I remember from that, and I, I wrote a very critical column that night actually about the team because. Uh, here you had all these young guys. You mentioned Ugla, Ramirez. I remember being in that clubhouse before the game and how nervous they all looked, um, even after a spring training that was fairly promising, that this was sort of their first opportunity with a, a totally new team. And uh, and I remember them playing that game against Houston, and I remember Marlins Brass was sitting with San Antonio officials um, wearing, uh, you know, big hats, basically, because at the time, uh, there were a lot of stories about the Marlins potentially moving uh, to San Antonio. But I think it was pretty clear from the beginning that Hanley uh, had special talent. Um, And then you ended up covering, uh, you know, sort of the the formative years of his career. Um, And and I think Marlins fans have mixed feelings about Hanley, Uh, just incredible talent, but some moments that were a little bit frustrating, running out balls, that kind of stuff. What was the Hanley Ramirez experience like for you as a broadcaster?
2: It sounds like a, a name of a uh, alternative rock band, right? The Hanley Ramirez experience. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah so I, I think you you said it quite well. Uh, supremely talented um, and at the same time supremely frustrating to uh, managers, to teammates, to fans,. Um, very much an Enigma type guy, but he was that was uh I remember that Houston uh series and I remember the the spring training going uh into that game and how anonymous everybody was. And you know, Ugla's bio reading it, they even even in the uh the major league bio of Dan Ugla, they butchered the pronunciation of his name uh in their little pronunciation guide. Uh, which led to confusion around the league, which led to uh, everybody calling him Yugla for the first month.
3: <laughs> I was curious. Which, I was curious, like, what, like, how, how would they have butchered it? I would have gone, I would have gone for Oogla. No. Oogla.
2: Yeah, it was Oogla. And and um, Oogla or Yugla, that's what everybody was calling him. And, <laughs> and for the first month, Tommy Hutton and I um, spent, that month uh correcting everybody from PA announcers and visiting ballparks to other broadcasters. And so we it, it, we had a month, a full month and a half of um of telling everybody his name is Dan Ugla. Um and it just didn't help, right? And so he he went on a tear and he hit a huge home run. It was a critical home run late in the game and and I blurted it out and his name is Dan Ugla and that kind of stuck for a few years as whenever you hit a big home run or a significant home run, that was kind of the call, but that's where that started. They, they were so anonymous, but you know, Girardi did a terrific job with that team. Um, and they turned it like mid late season and, and not just the position players, but the arms, uh, Josh Johnson, uh, Ricky Nolasco, Dontrell was still on that team. Um, Anibal Sanchez, Jason Vargas, Uh, Mike Jacobs uh, had a, a, uh, you know, for him, it was a chance that was uh, the arrival of Cody Ross, who would be a a fan favorite. So uh, by the midpoint of that season, though, it it turned into a really good story from, like you said, that first nervous night in Houston to uh, a a bunch of guys who who, who really knew that they were fortunate to get a shot, number one, and enjoyed the heck out of life being in the major leagues. and, And that translated on the field.
3: But but to, to get back to Ethan's question, though, the Hanley Ramirez experience, was there like a, a moment that you remember where I think it was when there was like a short fly ball in a short left field and he basically kicked the ball for a triple? Like what, like what what do you remember about Hanley, both good and bad?
2: Well, good is that he could do just about anything he wanted on a baseball field. He could steal a base. He could hit a ball 425 feet uh, for a home run. He could drive the ball uh, you know to the opposite field. He could win a batting title, which he did. You know, the, the hard part was, you know, the effort was in and out and the focus, I guess is maybe a better word was, was in and out. So that was, if you want to encapsulate the Hanley Ramirez experience in, in a few words, those, uh, those are probably, uh, those words. Um, yeah. And there was tension, you know, I remember a couple of times in, you know, teammates, uh, did not take to Hanley's antics, uh, or lack of focus, uh, too well, and that was a somewhat of an eye opener. Um, so that's that. I mean, look, he's he's gone on and had you know put up nice numbers in in, in other places. But I think when I think of Hanley Ramirez, I look at his career, and and sometimes I think about what could have been, uh, more so than where he is right now.
1: Yeah. You mentioned it was teammates. Uh, it was also, uh, sort of the old heads who were still around the organization. Like I remember Andre Dawson and Tony Perez, uh, trying to work with him a little bit and trying to make their case. And, and that didn't go over, uh, that didn't go over quite so well. But again, you look at that 2006 team and for a team that was built sort of out of nowhere, uh, you know, a bunch of guys had, had pretty good careers. You mentioned Cody Ross, who was a fan favorite. Um, before we move on, I got a question about all the managers you were around because I, it's pretty amazing. There were actually nine different managers during your time. Although I don't know if we count Hyde because he, I think he was there for one game, but, uh, that's a lot, it's a lot of managers, uh, for you to be sort of working around and interviewing and getting information from. But, uh, one, one other guy, because when I polled this uh, the other day for the 25th anniversary celebration, um, the guy who was named uh, by our uh, listeners or followers on Five Reasons Sports as their favorite Marlin ever, and I, I basically put 12 names on a list and we narrowed it down um, all the way to one, was Dontrell. And uh, you were there for for a really, really good season he had in 2005, 2006 uh, not as good, and then he moves on in the Cabrera trade. Uh, what are your memories of Dontrell? Because I, to me uh, – and this was before you got there, but I covered a bunch of his games in 2003 – and I can't remember a sensation with the Marlins like that, um, particularly there was a, a 2-1 game against uh, Randy Johnson where, I mean, the ballpark was full and and just everybody was caught up in sort of D-train uh, fever. W- what memories do you have of Dontrell?
2: Just that, just the hysteria. And the and even before I arrived, uh, watching from a distance, um, you know, his arrival in 03 uh, came at a great time where all of a sudden the team— really took off and you know, just the, the, it, it's one of those guys when it, when it was a, like a Jose Fernandez start or, uh, you know, back in Seattle days or Randy Johnson start or, um, you know, here w- with Dontrell, it was a happening. It was an event. It was a Dontrell start and not just, uh, at home when, when the, the Marlins were on the road and Dontrell was starting, there were a lot of fans. He reached, uh, through, uh, the normal major league baseball fans, and touched, uh, you know, sports fans, fans that liked stories. Um, he kind of brought everybody uh, to the ballpark and, and many people that didn't, you know, come to the ballpark on a regular basis. That hysteria, that um, excitement, uh, the unique, not only the unique delivery, but just the personality and and how, how bright a light he was uh, shining at that point in his career a word
1: from one of our new sponsors. That sponsor is miss-inc.com. That's miss inkcom They are social media problem solvers. They do social media marketing and content writing. We are using them right now. They've been in business for 10 years and they believe in a personal customized approach to marketing. So they only represent businesses that are serious about taking their visibility to the next level. Social media marketing requires much more than just a blog or profiles on a website like Facebook or Twitter. It takes a smart strategy and a daily interactive focus. Miss Inc. has been leveraging social media for Miami businesses since 2008. They don't believe in cookie cutter strategies or in boxing your business in with others in your industry. Here's how you check them out. Go to miss-inc.com or call 305-537-6465. And I mentioned uh, the managers that you were around, and I, I'm going to go through the list here real quick, maybe to jog your memory, if maybe you've forgotten some of them, because it's it's pretty amazing. Um, we talk about the heat down here and, and sort of the stability that they've had, where they've had uh, since 1994 or 1995, I guess, they've had three coaches, um, Riley Spolster and Van Gundy. Uh, this is just since 2005 when you arrived, McKeon, Girardi, Freddie Gonzalez, Edwin Rodriguez, again, Brandon Hyde for one game, uh, McKeon, again, Ozzie Gian, which uh, I might have a question for you about that, Mike Redmond, Dan Jennings coming down from the front office, and Don Manningly As a broadcaster, when you're trying to get to know a team, I, I know a, a lot of broadcasters sort of rely on conversations with managers and, and uh, with other people in the clubhouse to kind of gather information. Do you have anything on any of those guys that you can share? Because it's just a really wide range of personalities that you were around.
2: You know, I, that's, uh, it, it is important as a broadcaster to have a good relationship with the manager. And, and all of those guys uh, I had great relationships with because you get information that helps you on the telecast that you can use, and you get information that's helpful on the telecast that you can't use. Um, and all of those guys were very uh, forthcoming and, and open, and you have to earn that type of trust as a broadcaster and... and even though guys came and went, many of those guys were in the organization or in the league that you knew from other places. Redmond is a player, Freddie from uh, Atlanta, Jack obviously from um, being in the organization, Edwin as well. Um, so yeah, it. it uh, I don't really have any you know wild stories other than it, it was sad to see some of them go. Uh, you know, Edwin Rodriguez in, in particular was, is a really good manager and a really good baseball person and was in a um, put in a really impossible spot. I, with, I remember the best moment um, with Edwin was when we went to, as a team, uh, the Marlins went to Puerto Rico and Edwin, I believe at that time was the first Puerto Rican born uh, major league manager. And the reception that he received when we got off the bus at the hotel was just emotional and, you could tell how much it meant to the, the Puerto Rican people and to Edwin at the time. Um, no, but I enjoyed all those guys, and I learned a little something from all of those guys, too. That's, I mean, that's part of the deal. You, When you're close to a manager or a coach uh, in any sport, I think it's incumbent on, on you. And for me, as an ex-athlete, I want to know things. I want to know strategy. I want to know why things went well. I want to know why things didn't go well. And all of those guys were great about it. You know, McKeon, in particular, was, was really fun to be around. First in 05, and then years later when he came back uh, to manage the team in that, that one half of a season, he was everything you thought he would be. You know, he managed from the seat of his pants. He had done everything and knows knew everybody in, in baseball. He couldn't pronounce anybody's name. Um he was interviewing him, or sitting in the dugout with him, was like a 10-minute, 15-minute comedy routine uh, on a nightly basis. Um, he obviously worked magic in, in 03. He was uh, he was fun, and that, that's you know I think it's important when you're um, when you're around guys like that to take a little bit of something from it. Um, as an as an athlete, I'm a um, as an ex athlete. I've always been interested, whether it's a a football, basketball coach, offensive coordinator, head coach, baseball manager, hitting coach, pitching coach, of learning something, learning why things happen, learning how things happen, what went right, what went wrong, why did that happen, the strategy, the layers of decision-making process for a manager that uh, arise uh, in, in the course of a game. So I learned something from all those guys.
1: You take a look at some of the other managers here. Um, You you mentioned Girardi was here for just the one year. Obviously, things worked out pretty well for him uh, after he left, after winning manager of the year. Uh, But the one guy I wanted to ask you about, because it was just a tumultuous uh, season, was 2012 uh, with Ozzie Guillen. uh, Because the team had – it was sort of a ballyhooed move that they made to bring Ozzie in. Uh, He'd obviously won a World Series with the White Sox. And then uh, you know there were a lot of new players that year that people were, were excited about. And Ozzy just kept saying things that kept getting him in trouble. Um, what did you experience from the Ozzy Guillen year?
2: You know, Ozzy was uh, to to me and to Tommy. Um, Ozzy was great because Ozzy was as candid a guy as you'll find, and that maybe, you know, probably didn't help him in in the course of a season that that went sideways pretty quickly. Um, he was terrific. He was, uh, you know, Ozzy was. Uh, there were there was nothing that scared Ozzie Guillen. He wasn't afraid of anything, uh, anybody, and that's you know his personality that you saw on television or heard on radio. That was him. That's how he managed. That's how um, it went. And and that whole season was uh, that whole season it, it went sideways quickly. And and obviously with Ozzie the. Um, the Castro uh, comments were probably the, the start of it. Um, and, and, and quite honestly, I don't think that the team ever recovered from the early uh, slide there at that point. But Ozzy, look, I like Ozzy a, a lot and, um, and learned a lot from him too. Um, I like Joey Cora. Joey was a, you know, kind of Ozzy's right-hand guy there. And um, he had a lot on his plate going on. And that may be a, the, the big, you know, one of the downfalls of that season that there was just so much going on for Ozzie that was not necessarily on the field or between the lines, but um, just trying to put out fires, whether it was Heath Bell or things that Ozzie himself said, uh, that was a year long struggle.
3: We've talked a lot about, obviously, some of the fan favorites and Ugla and Dontrell and then the managers, sort of the the big names from that time. Were there any characters uh, from the time that, you know, maybe a utility infielder or someone that you always had a fondness for, you always enjoyed dealing with?
0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator ten for ten percent off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
2: Yeah, uh, that's uh, that's a great question. I think you always. What ends up happening is if you are a whether you work for the team as a trainer, um, uh, a broadcaster, a PR person. You get to know everybody as people, and it's not, well, this guy's an all-star, so I really like him, or this guy's uh, one of the best pitchers in the game, and I really like him. You gravitate to people that you would gravitate whether they were bankers or lawyers or teachers or whatever. So guys that stand out, um, you know, John Baker was, was uh, you know left-hand hitting catcher. He now works in the Cubs front office. He was a, uh, just a really fascinating guy who struggled to get to the big leagues, had to, cl- you know, climb over a lot of mountains to get there. Uh, really bright, really innovative. Um, Burke Badenhop, we used to do a ga- uh, a, almost a game show feature on the uh, pregame show, Stump the Hopper, because he has a photographic memory, and he could name every every college mascot, and if you named a city – a minor league city. He would tell you the nickname of the team and the affiliation of that team. Cody Ross was uh, another guy that you um, that you really liked. You know, modern day. Thinking about the last few years, uh, you kind of rooted for guys that that weren't um, that weren't uh, the the superstars. Guys that were just hanging on, and then then you would meet guys that were accomplished and and you know a guy that really. St- struck me as being bright and interesting was dan heron and he's proven it uh you know the last couple years he's he's now the one of the top pitching consultants for the uh, arizona diamondback he has a really cool job with them so those are those are some of the guys that you that you meet and you like and you root for
3: on the three yards per carry podcast you get this type of analysis Even if you count all those guys, there's only two players in the NFL that are producing three
0: yards or better every time they even step on the field and run a route. And those are Julio Jones and Jakeem Grant. And this, too. So naturally, we have this dick that could set fire to a suitcase with us, okay? So... Nobody's talking about your (laughs) watch, (laughs) Mike.
3: Join us every Thursday for 3 Yards Per Carry on the 5 Reasons Sports Network covering all of your Miami Dolphins news.
1: So we're going to move now to one of the guys that I think you're most associated with because you called so many of his home runs. So your, your sort of memories of Giancarlo Stanton, I guess it was Mike Stanton at first, but kind of his emergence. Uh, I, I remember uh, Marlins fans started to get to know him because he was the guy the Marlins would not include in that trade for Manny Ramirez. And I think there was a little bit of buzz about Stanton uh, because of that, when there were some some calls to get Ramirez uh, at the end of a season. And then he comes up and he starts hitting tape measure shots. And uh, he looks like, uh, you know, he's the guy that you know, the women want to be around and, and all the rest of that. Um, he just had a presence to him. How did the home run calls with him develop, and and what are some of your memories of Stanton and leading all the way up to last season, which obviously was kind of the culmination of all of it?
2: Well, the thing you learned about Stanton as a broadcaster right away was anything off his bat, you know, you judge fly balls, you judge line drives from the the broadcast booth, and part of making a call, whether it's a single, uh, a double, a fly ball out, is the anticipation or, uh, you know, the initial call giving some sort of signal that hey that could be a double or that's going to be a fly ball out. The thing you learned right away with Stant is you couldn't anticipate you, you you had to add about thirty to fifty feet to everything off the bat more than you your instinct told you. So a ball off his bat where you were you would your instinct would say that's going to be a fly ball out or that's going to be a line drive in the gap. It it ended up being about fifty. Many times it ended up being over the fence or off the wall, or over somebody's head because you just hadn't seen that type of strength, that type of exit velocity in anybody before. So it took about a month before you... Um, to, to make that adjustment as a play-by-play announcer that anything off Stanton's bat is not a normal ball off a bat, and it's going to go a lot farther than you really think it, it, it's going to. He was, um, you know... When I think of Stanton, it's it's funny because people around, and even now with the Yankees, people think about just a, a slugger who just annihilates baseball, a one-dimensional type player, but I think of him as a just a well-rounded athlete. This was a guy that was a corner and a um, wide receiver at, at, at you a know, similar type size in high school, at a really good high school in Southern California, it was offered by Pete Carroll at USC um, – a full ride for uh, college football. He was a back to the basket, uh, you know, center uh, in high school and he played baseball and he, he didn't play in select travel teams and, you know, showcase leagues and, and, and all of that coming up. He was just a well-rounded athlete that, that liked baseball uh, like the Dodgers growing up. So when he, you know, when he got to the big leagues, you could see that his, his uh, routes in the outfields, his technique, uh, you can see the athleticism, and I still see it. Although you, you expect, and you can see a little bit of it as his career grows and he gets older. Um, you know, especially with the Yankees, if he's going to DH a lot, that I think some of those outfield skills and, and such uh, will diminish. But he was uh, look, he's uh, he was a lot of fun, and, and I'm you know, outside of, of you know the Ugla call, I've never been one that has a, a home run call that's the same. And with Stanton, that's a, I think that's a good rule to have because none of his home runs look the same. They're, you know, his home runs deserve description rather than just, um, to me, than just the same old call, um, because their missiles, their, you know, mammoth high blasts, the, those home runs did things to ballparks, um, did things in the air, um, that you've never seen before in, in baseball, and you're starting to see more of it as, you know, with Judge and, and bigger guys and and all of that. But I I, I really felt when he, when calling a Stanton home run, you're you're better off just describing it and making it unique because everyone was unique.
3: Right, and uh, that's actually my feeling on catchphrases in general, right? So, like, I'm watching the World Cup and, you know, a lot of Spanish-language commentating, you just do goal for every goal, right? And I'm like, no, every goal is different, right? Sometimes they're a tap-in from a foot in front of the goal, and sometimes they're a 35-yard laser beam that goes into the top corner. Like, they're not all the same. So I'm I'm with you in that regard, but I I wanted to transition to – uh, Jose Fernandez, because obviously in terms of your time in, bro- in, in in broadcasting the Marlins, no doubt one of the characters that stands out the most. Um, I guess we'll kind of start on the more kind of on the sad end, which was the, the feeling of devastation the morning of. And, and And I went to one of the few Marlins games I've actually been to the last few years was that game that he play or that the Marlins played after he passed and Jose, uh, I'm sorry, D Gordon hit the Homer uh, to, to lead off the game for the Marlins, just sort of the feeling around the team and the feeling of sadness when his, his death initially happened.
2: Well, look, it was, um, you know, in my professional life, it was two of the hardest days um, that I've ever experienced because you got word on Sunday morning. It was a day game against the Braves um, Everybody kind of got a text or saw it on on television. The the crawl that Jose had been killed, and there was such disbelief. And everybody raced to the ballpark. We were told uh, as you know, we were told that the game would not be played, but that the Marlins would have a press conference. And then I was told that we were going on the air uh, right before the press conference to announce what had happened and then carry that press conference. And so you know, you're, I think you have to step back and, and again, reiterate how everybody felt about Jose as, uh, you know, like your favorite brother, your little brother, uh, whether you were a player, whether you were a front office person, whether you were an usher, uh, whether you were a parking attendant, Jose was the guy that always said hello to you. Uh, Jose was the guy that always talked to you. He, um, he was a, um, he was the type of, and so that added to what obviously has a tragedy that just has layers upon layers of sadness and tragedy attached to it. So, um, you know, you come on the air and you're trying to hold it together because he, you know, he used to come to the booth when he had Tommy John surgery and sit in and, and just look because he was so curious. He wanted to see what television was about. He came on the air with us. Um, And then you we tossed it down to that news conference and it just you never seen anything like that with front office, uh, you know, general managers and managers and teammates just, you know, falling apart. Uh, And then the next night, you're all of a sudden you have to do a telecast. And I can't, um, you know, look, it was hard as a broadcaster, but I just can't imagine as a as a player what how hard it, it was uh, for those guys to, to play that game. Um, you know, I, it's, uh, you saw things on that, on that Monday night, uh, on the field that you'd never seen in, in your life uh, and never expected to see on the field of a, of a sport, whether it's baseball or football or, or basketball. You, I, 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 remember that the, um, the team didn't take the field for a seven o'clock game. They didn't come out, guys didn't come out and start stretching or running. Till about five minutes before seven o'clock, uh, there was no batting practice or infield or anything. And, and um, I remember uh, we, we did a live open, and my producer said, We're, "I'm going to show you. Um, I'm going to show you a shot of this and that, and fans in mourning, and the, the monument outside of the, the ballpark, and then we'll come in the park, and I'll show you guys running and stretching. I'll show you Yelich and, and Stanton." and... Ozuna, and that's kind of your, you know, for the open, you're you're expecting that as a, and you're narrating that, and and when we got to the shots of the players, um, you realized that, you know, there they were running and stretching, but they were all weeping, um, and then at that point, you you was, you know, just really hit you that this is going to be hard, and this is, this is going to be something that, you know, you you have you've never experienced and you've never seen. Um, and you could see, I mean, there were shots of, of players throughout the game, breaking down on the field, not, you know, and, and not just Marlin players. Um, I think there was a, a shot of Travis Darnot, uh, the Mets catcher who was, uh, crying, you know, during the game. So, um, yeah, that, that was, um, and it's, I've not watched that telecast. I, I I have not gone back and ever watched any of that telecast, and I and I, quite honestly, I don't think I ever will. Um, but there were so many things in that in that game and on that telecast that were not scripted. You know that the team did a really nice job to me, of not. Scripting, we're going to do this and we're going to honor him this way. We're going to do this. There were just a few little simple things and the rest of it was spontaneous. Um, our production uh, group did an incredible job. We had great sound uh, in, in dugouts and on the fields uh, to begin with. And, and it, it especially was important, I think, on that night uh, and during those moments.
3: And in terms of from a baseball playing point of view and just sort of how incredible he was, we talked about some of the best Marlins you've ever seen. I'm sure at the peak of his powers, uh, he if he'd sort of carried on, he would have been one of the best pitchers ever.
2: Yeah. Look, there's, uh, look, there's I still get, uh, in fact, I did a game yesterday in, uh, in Seattle, um, the Rangers and the Mariners, and I forget who it was, but someone came up to me and asked me about Jose and said, Hey, what was it like calling his games? Because I used to watch him from a different league. I used to watch all of his starts, you know, much like we talked earlier about Dontrell, who used to attract eyeballs and and fans. And it was, I told him man, it was everything that you thought it would be there. The the energy that he brought to the mound during those starts, the passion, the fun that he had, um, all of that was included in the start. And, you know, Plus, he was a dominant pitcher. Uh, on top of that, he was a dominant pitcher. And so, that, look, there's that story and, and his death have, as I said, just layers of, of tragedy from, you know, the alcohol and the cocaine to the loss of two other lives to, you know, his family, his unborn child. So it was such a heavy, heavy thing that uh, for anybody to get through But it's still it's still hard. I saw D Gordon um, uh, the other day in uh, in Seattle at a game. And, you know, just the impact it's had on on those players is and most of those guys have dispersed throughout Major League Baseball. That that's a that's a lifetime thing for them. and, And certainly it's a it's a lifetime thing for me.
1: Before we move on on this, uh, you mentioned D Gordon, uh, before, uh, we did the pod, I was listening to your call, uh, on, on the home run. Um, what went through your mind at that moment and, and how well do you remember it?
2: I remember it uh, quite well because it was early in the game and, and at that point, and I was working with Al Leiter at that point, you're just trying to keep it together and, and, um, and keep from breaking down. um, we were told that D might do something um, to honor Jose. And, um, and so as he came to the – you could tell he had uh, – he didn't have his bat. He didn't have Jose's – I think he had Jose's helmet. Um, and, he, and he came to the right-handed batter's box against Cologne. So um, you knew that was um, an extraordinary moment to begin with right there. Takes a pitch, takes you know, changes everything, and flips over, and then hits it out. And you know, you call the you call the home run. You you try to reflect in your voice the the gravity of it or the significance of it of the moment. It was I, I remember the crowd at, at that point was just I think looking for something to uh, latch onto. And, and it, and even though it wasn't a full house, um, the place just exploded. And so as D, you know, hits it and you call the home run, you realize, and there's nothing I can say that is any better than the crowd, uh, than D running around the bases than that moment. And so just let the moment go. And the other thing, you know, I knew, uh, that we had, um, we had great sound, as I as I mentioned. We had great sound in the plate area, in the dugout area, um, and so you knew that when he was finished rounding the bases, those uh, those sounds, um, those pictures, that was the moment, not me. And so I just let it go, and you know, in in I've seen that play. I haven't watched the telecast. But I've seen that play on highlights and stuff. And I was – I think that was the only way to do it, was not talk over it, not ruin it, because you could hear, you know, players uh, crying. Uh, you know, you could hear just the the emotion in the dugout. And he literally, you know, he fell into somebody's arms. They led him through the dugout and down into the clubhouse. It was um, – that was – to me, as an announcer, look, you're, you you want to make a call, but at the same point, the crowd, the 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 sound from the the fields, all of that is part of that that call. And so, you know, that was that was my approach: was get the get out of the way and let the moment happen, and let just let everything happen and, and watch it. No!
1: Of the things that, uh, Chris and I have talked about a little bit is looking for the next big star in South Florida and uh, in South Florida sports. And it's kind of a dry time for that. You know, Dwayne Wade comes back at age 36 and he's instantly the biggest star, uh, in Miami again. And one of the things that Chris and I talked about was that if Jose had, uh, had lived that he had an opportunity um, to be that guy for the next, if the Marlins kept him, which was always an issue uh, with the contract stuff, but to be that guy for the next 10 years because he had that charisma, uh, obviously from a performance standpoint, obviously being Cuban in this community, uh, it was all put together there. And I'm just curious uh, for you as an observer of this you mentioned all the layers with Jose and a lot of them you mentioned are personal. And of course those are the most important, but do you think if, if Jose lives, if he, if that situation does not happen, that maybe the breakup of the team doesn't happen. that maybe they, they build with him because maybe last year with Stanton and Yelich and Ozuna having the seasons that they had, if you had Jose as an ace on that team and you added another pitcher, uh, that it could move forward that way. How much do you think it changed the course of the franchise?
2: Well, look. It's hard to, um, from a personal standpoint, it's hard to use the word tragedy and transaction in the in the same thought or sentence. So, but it's easier to do it now that you're two, three years removed from from it. Um, Yeah, look. I I think it changes everything. I think it changed the uh, the. it, It certainly changed. Any moves that the team made over the next year in terms of if you had Jose, you probably build your pitching staff differently instead of going after uh, veterans and hope that you can recapture their, you know, instead of going after mid-range and overpaying for mid-range starters. um, If you've got Jose as your anchor, you can, you know, maybe keep some of the young guys that you traded away to get uh, you know, to, to plug into the rotation the next year. And then that's a, that has a cascading effect on the next year and the next year. So, yeah, I, I think it changes everything. Um, but you, you don't know. I mean, uh, you don't know what, what moves they would not have made and, and what they would have made. I think they probably would have changed their approach of building that pitching staff uh, around him rather than heaping um, – money on guys that you, you, know, you keep your fingers crossed and obviously didn't work out for them. And, and that probably added to where, where the team is now.
3: want to introduce you to the newest podcast on the five reasons sports network it is a soccer podcast it's called pitch invasion my name is chris Winningham. i'll be hosting it throughout the world cup and then we'll continue after the world cup but right now we're focused on the world's tournament it is 32 teams battling it out for one trophy i'll be recapping the games basically after every two days worth of action so every other day we'll be putting on a podcast recapping all the latest action talking about all the major storylines we'll get some guests on and we'll have a great time talking about this World Cup. It's been really fun so far so you're going to want to check out Pitch Invasion subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to kind of transition away from what we've been talking about and kind of talk about you from a career point of view and what uh, what baseball broadcasting is now all about. So, in terms of obviously moving from moving away from the daily experience and, and, frankly, from a personal point of view, as someone who wants to get into broadcasting, like I don't think there's a more difficult job than in broadcasting. Right, what we do is fairly you know it's light and it's fun, but in broadcasting, doing a game basically every day for six months. That You know, how how difficult that is. But uh, you had had mentioned to us off air that uh, you're working for now a few tech areas, right? So you're doing the Facebook broadcast that MLB is doing and you're doing VR for the NBA in the first round for Turner. So just sort of from your personal point of view, how either difficult or challenging or rewarding is it? to just kind of take everything on board, right? Whatever comes your way, whatever way that the industry is moving or the presentation of sports and baseball in particular to the audience, how do you just kind of roll with those punches?
2: Well, I've been real fortunate because I've always done college football and basketball. Um, I was a college shortstop and did not go to broadcasting school. So I learned just by doing it and played basketball and, uh, and football in high school. And so those sports... And hockey, uh, I didn't play it, but I, I called it early in, in the minor leagues. Those sports helped get me where I wanted to go, as well as baseball. So, um, you know, I was really fortunate this college basketball season. You know, both Fox and uh, especially CBS reached out uh, when everything happened and said, look, we, we'll give if you want to do more basketball, we'll, we'll give you more basketball. So uh, I ended up with a ton of college basketball. Uh, and I got to, as you know, to d- jump into some different uh, areas, uh, some other doors that that open. And one of those was with Turner Sports um, and their virtual reality telecast. It's something that if you've watched the NBA playoffs on TNT, you saw Reggie Miller uh, wearing the goggles once again to, to promote. It's really it, it's uh, for a play by play announcer. You're still doing play by play. You're still calling a game. Uh, and I did the East Regionals of uh, the NCAA tournament and then the first round of the NBA uh, playoffs that way. So you're still it's still play by play. It's just on a different platform. So, um, you know, the, as a as a as the in terms of the technique, it's the same. But you realize it's a different platform. And that's one of the things that's happening in sports uh, television uh, and and all of television is the distribution of it? It's still play-by-play. It's still the NBA playoffs or the NCAA tournament or Major League Baseball. What's different is just the platform it's distributed on. And if you've got kids, I've got a 17 and a 21-year-old. Uh, they're they're great in terms of the new technology, uh, streaming stuff from their uh, devices, uh, watching it on on different platforms. And what's happening with these with leagues, Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, is they want their product distributed, uh, as it always has been, uh, but they realize that it's not just going to be distributed on TNT or MLB uh, or Fox Sports Florida. It's going to be distributed on uh, Google, on Twitter, on Facebook, on uh, virtual reality. So, um, you know, those opportunities were a lot of fun. The NBA was, uh, was really cool because I got to jump into three different series in that first round and do games. Uh, and the Facebook stuff with, with Major League Baseball is a, is a very important initiative for uh, the league because they realize two things. One, distributing their games, they need to be as um, innovative and up to speed as everybody else. Uh, so this deal with Facebook is it's a game a week, and I'll do uh, you know, two or three games a month on that package. Um, and you know, you, it's a free game. Uh, it is on Facebook. You don't have to watch the the comments go by. You can swipe right, and the comments disappear. But as, every now and then, I'll remind viewers: just be careful what app you're swiping right on. Uh, <laughs> <for your wife. laughs> um, and so, and so that's a um, yeah. Look, it's a uh, you know the the Facebook game is it, you're just calling the games. You know, I've had a chance to, to work with some. Uh, some really good analysts as well on those telecasts. I worked with Oral Hershiser, Eric Burns, um, Mike Kruko, the great Giants uh, announcer and former pitcher. I worked with Mark Langston um, this uh, on uh, yesterday, the, the former angel and Mariner lefty. It's just a different platform. It's just, it's a, it's a different way to um, distribute the games. Uh, and for me, you know, I have the ability to, uh, Actually answer the phone calls and and do some of the stuff that people have asked me to do in the past that I haven't been able to do because I've been doing a game a a day or a game every day for six months. So while I'd love to be doing a, a, a baseball team every day, the fact that some of these other opportunities
3: have come up have been very cool. So you did the VR game. What is, or the VR games, I should say. What is that experience like? Is there anything different? Are you uh, sort of pointing out different things to look at with the goggles? Like, I, I, is there anything? Yeah. Is there anything intrinsically yeah, different about the experience?
2: Well, the experience as a viewer is is immersive in terms of if you put those VR goggles on and you're watching an NBA game or that that NCAA tournament, uh, you know, East Regional games it's like you're sitting right at mid court. Um, because the, you know, the goggles, the, the aspect ratio is squeezed even lower than a high def. Um, so it's a long, I mean, you look to your left, you can see the coach standing in front of his bench. You look to your right, you can see a coat, the other coach standing in his bench and it's the same side of the court as your camera and your view. That's kind of the deal. And the players look like they're jumping right into your head. Um, so as a as a broadcaster and a television announcer, especially, you have to be uh, aware of the screen. You have to be aware of the monitor because you can't look in in, in just a standard televised uh, sporting event. You can't talk about something that's not on the screen. You can't say, "Boy, you know, look at Joe Smith. He's he's uh, fallen over," uh, or "He's, uh, you know, look at LeBron is is falling out of bounds," or. Because if you can't see it, it drives the viewer nuts if you're talking about something that they can't see. So um, with that in mind, yeah, if if, if if in the VR view, and we have that view on our monitors, as, as you're calling the game in the arena, in that VR view, if there's something that is of particular note uh, behind the play or around the play, or if a stat drops down uh, from the top on the right, you do direct the viewer to, hey, if you look to your right uh, right now, you can see uh, Steve Kerr is is angrily, uh, you know, in the ear of one of the officials or uh, you look at the Warriors bench right now and and they're going nuts. So, yeah, you're aware of that view. But when it comes down to it, you're still calling, you know, play by play. But with that, uh, with, you have to keep in mind of what the audience is seeing at the same time.
3: So you, 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 it's basically the audience has the visual of everything and everything you can see is theoretically in play. Yeah, you're
2: watching okay. it just like you call a regular game. Um, you, you are watching the field and the ball, but at the same time you're watching the monitor um, so that you know exactly what the audience at home is seeing uh, at the same time
1: rich before we close here uh i gotta get this from you quickly obviously you still stay very much in touch with uh with major league baseball it's been uh in my view kind of a strange season so far uh where you see a team like the dodgers that uh was that close to winning a world series last year and kind of what's happened to them from an injury perspective Uh, obviously the yankees and astros are pretty close to as advertised the mariners have been great uh real quick here do you have a world series pick at this point
2: hard right now isn't it i mean it's Mm -hmm. um Jeez, boy, American League, um, you want to go with the Astros because of, you know, that that's the team that's won it last year and they're somewhat intact. Um, you know, then a team that comes out of that National League East could, could easily win it. Um, or excuse me, the uh, American League East could, uh, could win it. National League, that's a tough call. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been immersed in the American League uh, this week. And uh, I, I'll go with Houston. I, I, I like Houston still. Um, Seattle's on a, a really nice run. And either of the teams at the top of the East could go as well. I, it's really hard. I, I don't like doing picks like this at this point um, because so much changes. An injury can change a rotation, can change the fortunes of a team. Um but in the American League, the team that I think is still the beat is the Astros. How's that? That's a wishy-washy way yeah. <laughs> around that. Just,
1: it? Just, just go with the defending champion when, uh, yeah, when, when, when when you need something, a team that still has all that. I, I wonder if the Mets are going to score a run for Jacob deGrom here at some point during the season. Uh, that's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. I, what, was He got like two wins over the course of 13 starts where he's allowed about six runs total so uh, certainly we have a lot of Mets fans in the audience it's been a rough run for them Rich we really appreciate you taking the time to do this um, I know you're not going to say it so we'll say it I, I know a lot of Marlins fans uh, miss you dearly and uh, and are, are certainly curious about what you're up to these days and, and hopefully this will be uh, a chance for them to find your work uh, which was always excellent here so thanks for doing it Rich and hopefully we can do this again sometime
2: I appreciate the kind words and, uh, and thanks for checking in